yes, the little ones for Children's Church. Children's Church. Thank you, Tim. That's what a head usher is for. <laughs> I was with the senior hires in Sunday school and didn't really get to look at the bulletin for a long time before the service. So I'll plead ignorance. I'm all right with that. It's not good for the law, but it'll do for here. So, all right. Well, last week we had a very different service, if you remember. Amen, yeah. Yeah, it was a different service. It was special. It was sweet. It was, uh, it was different than what we normally do. And at one point, uh, the Lord caused us to just wait in the Spirit and listen. And uh, what I can tell you that's so special about the presence of the Spirit here last Sunday, which is so neat, is that that same Spirit fell at our youth meeting that, fr- that Sunday night right after that. And so you can ask any youth who was here last Sunday night for their first Sunday night meeting that the Holy Spirit was poured out in that place. And special, too, because just a few nights later, among the young adults on Thursday night, the Spirit fell again. And, and the Lord is speaking. The Lord is moving. The Spirit of God is sweeping over people. And in real time, God is attempting to do something in our midst. And sometimes it's good to stop and say, God, what is it that you're doing? I mean, I think it's our tendency in this oversaturated, media-filled, quick-paced society that when a service like last week happened and a week like last week happened, we can just go, that was neat. Thanks, God. Appreciate it. That was special. Got to go back to work on Monday. You know? We can just sort of look at the experience of God trying to speak in our midst and just go, thank you, God. That was a neat service. The football games are on later. Appreciate it. But we have the other option, which is to ask the question, God, what are you trying to say? Lord, what are you trying to do? Holy Spirit, what are you trying to cause among us? Rather than say, oh, that was nice, that was sweet. In essence, when the Spirit of God begins to move, we should be saying, here I am, Lord, what do you have to say? And it begs the question, why does God speak in the first place? Why is it pertinent that the people of God listen? What's really happening when people begin to hear from the Lord? When people begin to be miraculously healed? When people begin to speak in all kinds of tongues? When prophecy comes forth? When people are prompted to step out in faith? What does it mean when the Spirit of God becomes palpable? In the midst of a congregation. In essence, when God's Spirit speaks, the question we want to ask today is, what should that trigger in us? What are we to do when the Spirit of God begins to move? Turn with me to a very familiar passage, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. You've probably heard this preached before by someone somewhere. It might have even been me because I've preached this passage, but there's a different context today. As you're turning, I'll give you a little bit of context. The Ark of the Covenant was at Shiloh. You said, well, I know what the Ark of the Covenant is. What is Shiloh? Shiloh is a place at sort of the center of Israel where the Ark of God and the Tabernacle of God was taken after the period of Joshua's conquest of the land. So 
The Hebrew children have come out of Egypt. They've spent their 40 years in the desert. They begin to conquer the land under their leader Joshua. And the Ark of God and the Tabernacle of God, the movable temple, if you will, are placed at Shiloh. Why at Shiloh? Well, Shiloh sort of centrally located, sort of in the middle of Israel, all right? And that was the place at which the Ark was placed, that, that Holy of Holies area that we talk of so often. It was at Shiloh for a time during a period that we call the period of the Judges. Now you say, what's the period of the Judges? The period of the Judges is a time after the conquest of the land that Israel is very split out. You all hear, well, there's 12 tribes in Israel. They were living like it. There was really no united kingdom. They really had not driven out everybody from the land. They were interspersed with many different cultures, many different peoples there in the land of Canaan that was to become what we know as Israel. And, in fact, we even have archaeological evidence that even though there was a tabernacle to Yahweh or Jehovah God at Shiloh, that some of the other tribes had taken it unto themselves to sort of build their own little temple in their land, in their portion of the, of the inheritance. Because the temple of God, or the tabernacle of God during the time of the judges, is at Shiloh, which is in the territory of the tribe of Ephraim. Okay? So interestingly enough, we know that the temple eventually is built in Jerusalem in the territory of the tribe of Judah. But for now, the Ark of God is there. Let's begin to read here and see if we can find out what we should be doing when God begins to speak. We're going to take this verse by verse this morning. It first says in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. Now, how many of you know the origin of Samuel? Raise your hand if you know the origin of Samuel. Samuel had a mother whose name was Hannah, and Hannah was barren. Hannah would go up to Shiloh with her husband Elkanah, and every year she would pray before the Lord, and they'd offer sacrifices. And one day she was weeping before the Lord and, and didn't even have words to speak, so she was sort of doing this. And the priest, Eli, standing there, thought she was drunk. And he said, woman, get rid of your wine and get out of here, you know. And eventually she said, I, I, I'm not drunk. I am, I am heart-stricken. I can't have children. And he said, the Lord answer your prayer. Be blessed. And the Lord did answer her prayer, and she had a first son and named him Samuel, which literally means heard of God. God heard me. And she says, you know what? God has given this son to me. She does something so spectacular, so wonderful, that, that you'd go, wow, I can't believe she did this. She said, God, you have been so good to me to give me this son. I'm giving him back to you. And when the boy was weaned, she took him to the tabernacle where Eli the priest was serving with his two sons and said, Eli, he is God's. He works here now. And because God was so good to her, he gave her three more sons, two more daughters, and she was able to continue to have children. So Samuel is in the service of the priest of God at Shiloh, named Eli. We get a very interesting note in part 2 of verse 1. It said, In those days the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. That's a stinky day. You don't want to have a day when the word of the Lord is rare and there's not many visions. You want the Lord, word of the Lord to be there all the time. And you want some visions, Right? You want God to show you some stuff. Well, that was not taking place here. Israel was not at a great point in their history when this book is written and when this particular uh, thing is taking place. The period of the judges was not a great time 
How many of you have ever really gone from Judges chapter 1 all the way to the end and read Judges? Did you just have an icky feeling when it was over? Did you just go, yuck? Because during that time, Israel sort of takes one step forward when it comes to serving God and doing what he called them to do, and then they take two giant steps backwards. They really weren't getting it right. And so when you read the book of Judges, at different times, they call out to God and say, God, help us. We know you haven't been ser- we haven't been serving you. We know we haven't been doing what's right. We need you to do something. And at that point, God would raise up a judge. He'd raise up a leader for the nation. People like Deborah and Gideon and Jephthah, Barak, people who would go out and help the Israelites get back to God and be released from oppression. Really what's taking place here is that Israel is at a down point in the bell curve of their existence. If you think about Israel on the bell curve, let's start right here with Abraham. And the Israelites move into Egypt and things are negative, but there's some rising action there because they're calling out to the Lord. And all of a sudden Moses comes. And the things begin to happen, those plagues. And the deliverance of God begins to be poured out. And all of a sudden the exodus, the seminal point of Jewish history, they are set free by a God who loves them. Then they get into the desert and they are getting the law. The climax is there. The exodus and the law given by God. A covenant with God. And then, oh, 40 years in the desert. And it goes back down like this. And the people rebel. And God kills some of them. And then pulls them back and says, you're mine again. And the people rebel. And God kills some of them. And then they come back to the Lord. And over and over again they rebel. And over and over again God says, we're going to purge the evil, but then you're going to come back to me. I'm going to redeem you. And then the period of the conquest in Canaan, you go back up, and Joshua comes after Moses. And they begin to take the land that God had promised to Abraham some 500 years earlier. They're taking the land that God had said it will be your inheritance, Abraham, for you and your children. And then Joshua dies, and guess what doesn't happen? They don't keep following God, and they don't take all the land. They allow the Canaanites to continue to live among them, to influence them. In the book of Judges, you're going back down the bell curve. In fact, we're at a period in Jewish history, as the book of 1 Samuel opens, where you just go, what's going to happen to these people? If you're really reading the Bible literarily, not, not going, well, I know all the answers already. If you're really reading the Bible, you go, ooh, this is a low point. And the author of 1 Samuel wants us to know it's a low point. The word of God was rare. Visions were rare. Because really the nation of Israel had become selective Yahwists. They were only serving Jehovah God when they were desperate or when things were good. But over and over again through time, they would get rid of Yahweh God, the only true God, and they would go to the Baals and the Asherah poles, and they would begin to, to worship the fertility gods of the Canaanites. Over and over again, they said, Yahweh God, thanks but no thanks. We're going to move over here. And then when things got bad, Yahweh God, help us! They were selective Yahwists. They would come back to the Lord when they needed Him, when they were desperate. Domestically, they were weak, they were separated. They hadn't really accomplished the full conquest of the land. So spiritually, it's a barren time. Domestically, it's not a good time. Things are not good. But Samuel is ministering before the Lord with Eli. The other thing that's hard 
when you read about this, is the nature of Eli. Let's move on to verse 2. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. Eli, the priest of the Lord, has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were bad dudes. Hophni and Phinehas did two things that they really shouldn't have been doing if you're a minister of the Lord. Number one, instead of allowing the fat to be completely rendered off of the sacrifices before they would take any of the sacrifices for their inheritance as priests, they would take the select portions that they wanted. In essence, they were stealing the sacrifices that people were bringing to God and eating them. They were thinking with their stomachs, and they were serving with their stomachs. And they were doing something that was horrifying in the eyes of God, that people would bring their offerings before the Lord. And even though God had said, you can have some of that, that's, that's your inheritance as Levites, uh, they were taking what was not theirs. Second, they were also sexually immoral men. They were engaging in temple prostitution, something that was rampant in the ancient world, but had no place in the religion of Yahweh. There's no, there's no such thing as temple prostitutes in the religion of Yahweh, yet Hophni and Phinehas had temple prostitutes. Bad dudes. And it says in chapter 2 that Eli confronted his sons and said, you should stop this, who's going to intercede for you? If a man sins against a man, you can intercede to God, but if a man sins against God, who's going to intercede for you folks? He confronts his sons, and guess what? His sons don't stop doing what they're doing. And Eli doesn't, and apparently Eli stops confronting them. He, he just said, well, I did my duty. I told him it was wrong. I'm out. They can continue to serve. Interestingly enough, the Bible says, one night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see. That seems to be a superfluous detail, does it not? Eli was going blind. Now, here's something you have to understand about Hebrew writers. Hebrew writers were the best writers of the ancient world. It's no, it's no coincidence that God used the Hebrew people to be his people. No one esteemed their language, and no one could catch the depth of human emotion, the depth of symbolism, the depth of the story like the Hebrew writers could. The Greeks were even behind the Hebrews in terms of their writing. The, the Hebrews were an older culture. There's symbolism going on in this writing. Remember symbolism? 11th grade language arts class? Symbolism. The biblical writer is telling us something about Eli by adding a superfluous detail. Because when you read the rest of the Bible, when somebody's eyes go weak, that means something. Does it not? That's symbolic of something. It's interesting that when Jesus is confronted with a blind man at one point in the scriptures, the disciples look at Jesus. Do you remember what they said? Who sinned? This man or his parents? Who's in sin here that this guy is blind? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. The biblical writer is telling us that Eli's life was becoming dark. His sons were, were operating in a way that was repugnant to the Lord, and he had not stopped it. He didn't stop it. His spiritual sensitivity was going blind. There's a symbolism here that the Hebrew writer, when we get a superfluous detail, you should be thinking, why did they tell me that? That's why they told you that. Remember when Isaac goes blind, what happens? He's made a fool of by his son Jacob, is he not? 
Blindness in, in, in this type of literature is trying to convey to us that the spiritual sensitivity, the sharpness, is gone out of the person. And God is trying to do something here in this story that's going to be important that we understand that Eli is losing his sight. I also believe that this is a microcosm of the Israelite people at this point. We've just, we've just heard that there weren't many visions and the Lord wasn't speaking. And then the very next thing is we hear that the chief priest of the Lord's eyes were going dark. Could it be that this is a microcosm of what's taking place in all of Israel at the beginning of 1 Samuel? Yes. Yes, it is. You just have to keep reading and you'd know. It's a microcosm of what's taking place. The high priesthood is in deep trouble and the people are in deep trouble. Their eyes are going dark. The light is going out of their eyes. But then verse 3 comes into play. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Ooh, that's juicy. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. Now there's an interesting prescription in Leviticus chapter 4 as it applies to the lamp of God that is in the holy place. And the interesting prescription that it says there is that lamp is to burn continually. And then they go even so far at the beginning of Leviticus chapter 24 to say, make sure it's even burning from night until morning. Make sure you keep that burning all night long. Now, we don't know tons about how everything was done in terms of this period of temple worship or tabernacle worship. But we do know that by the time Herod's temple comes around, that that light would never have gone out. And so we can assume, according to chapter 24 that if God, of Leviticus, that if God tells them, don't let that light go out from night until morning, that it's on all the time. Does that make sense? So from our best guess, we would say that this light... The lamp of God, this, this, this candelabra, if you will, that's in the holy place, is never supposed to go out. Once again, we encounter symbolism from the Hebrew writer. He's saying the lamp of God, though dim, though the nation of Israel is in deep trouble, the lamp of God, the light of God has not yet gone out. Regardless of how negative things are in Israel, the lamp of God's still on. All right? Or you could have just read that and gone, that must have been night. Symbolism from the writer. He could have just said it was night. Instead, he uses the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And did you notice where the boy Samuel made his bed? Is it still up there? Did you see that? Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. It even says that in chapter 2, he stayed continually in the presence of God. I don't know. I think I can count on one finger the people that tells me in the Bible slept next to the ark of the Lord. That's pretty cool. I'd be terrified myself. Apparently Samuel wasn't as a young boy that he would go and sleep in the very place that the presence of God on earth was. That tells us a lot about who Samuel was, does it not? Eli's lying in his usual place. Samuel the boy is laying next to the presence of God. It's where he makes his bed. Wow, that's an interesting little tidbit. And then the story really gets cooking. Verse 4, then the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went back and lay down again. Again the Lord called Samuel. 
And Samuel got up and he went to Eli and he said, here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call you, go back and lie down. If I'm Eli, I'm getting bitter at this point. Woke him up twice. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel a third time. And Samuel got up and he went to Eli. And he said, here I am, you called me. And only now, Eli says, realized that the Lord was calling. And he said to the boy Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood there, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. Well, that's a funny set of events. Number one, I can think of the old curmudgeon Eli laying there, and the boy wakes him up three times in the middle of the night. I'm sure Samuel was not received warmly by the man. Interestingly enough, the priest of the Lord, who's in the tabernacle of God with this boy, apparently at least the only two that we know are there, the boy hears a voice calling his name, and he knows he hasn't done it, and it takes him three times to recognize, oh, God might be speaking. That's the priest of God now. That's not, that's not some country bumpkin who's, who's, who, who, who is way off in Galilee. This is the priest of God at Shiloh. It takes him three times to recognize that, oh, God might be trying to speak to this boy here in the tabernacle of God. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And then the message comes. The time of listening is now. Verse 11. See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli the guilt of Eli will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. And Samuel laid down until morning, and that opened the doors of the house of the Lord. It says he was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called and said, Samuel, my son. And Samuel answered, here I am. And Eli asked, what was it that he said to you? Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. And Eli said, well, he's the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. God spoke something to Samuel. And it was to inform him that the spiritual status quo was not acceptable. That was taking place in the very tabernacle of God wasn't good enough. It wasn't acceptable. The place where Eli and his sons were at was not the place that God had for them. And the place that Israel was at in following Eli and his sons were not the place that God had for them. God speaks when the status quo among his people is unacceptable. I'm trying to think of times in the Bible where God used small talk. You know, how's the weather? How you doing? What's up? Never. God speaks to his people when the spiritual status quo of those people is unacceptable. Not to say that people are always in sin. Not to say that they're always going to hell in a handbasket, but God speaks when he wants men and women to move and when he's about to do something to change the status quo. You might think, well, Matt, that's a terrible message. 
You've been saying from the beginning that God's beginning to speak among us here at Victory Life. Are you telling us that we're going the way of Eli and his sons? No. No. I don't think anything like that is going on here. But before we get to what's really going on here, because I think there's a deeper meaning behind what God is saying, think of what Samuel just went through for a moment. Put yourself in Samuel's shoes. Number one, it says before that God spoke to him, he really didn't know the Lord. He just stayed in the presence of the Lord. And then one night, God stands before him. And he doesn't say, Samuel, my son, I love you. You are my chosen servant. I just appreciate who you are. The fact that you sleep by the ark, that's pretty cool. You are a neat kid, and I have great plans for you. I would have liked that message that I've been Samuel. That's not what he says. He says, Samuel, you know the guy who's been raising you? I'm going to wipe him and his family off the face of the earth. That's how we're going to start our relationship. Think about that. And then Samuel goes and lies down. You, I don't think Samuel slept that night. You know, no. He, seriously, when God speaks, he often speaks the very thing that we don't want to hear, doesn't he? The very thing that we're not ready to hear. Do you think Moses really wanted to move from Ur and then Haran? Do you think he wanted to go be a vagabond in a land not his own? Do you really think that that was interesting to him? Go to the land of the Canaanites, live in a tent. Go where I show you. Do you really think Moses wanted to leave Midian where he had wives and he had a wife and he had children and, a, and, and, a, and flocks and he had made a new home and God says, uh, go back to Egypt where you're a fugitive and lead the people out. Oh, cool, God, thanks. Do, do, do you really think Mary was excited to go into her town after that night with the angel and go, guess what, I'm pregnant. Mary, you're not married. I know. Do, do you really think that in John chapter 21, where Jesus predicts Peter's death, if he continues to follow him, Peter's going, all right. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for reinstating me. Appreciate it. God often says the very thing that we don't want to hear, doesn't he? But imagine for a moment if Abraham hadn't moved from Haran. Imagine for just a moment if Moses hadn't returned to Egypt. Or if Mary had refused the angel of the Lord. Or if Peter had gone to Jesus and said, thanks dude, I'm out. None of that happened. And here the very next morning, probably the thing that Samuel was dreading happens. The very man who has been his protector comes to him and says, hey, tell me what God said. Uh, Eli. Your line is going to be wiped out because of the sin of your sons. And God's going to do a new thing in Israel as it, as it pertains to the priesthood. It's a very hard message, is it not? To tell somebody that your line's going to be wiped out. That, that God is in judgment of you. And that's the first message he ever gets from the Lord. He doesn't get to walk up to somebody and say, Hey, be healed. Oh, they're healed. Thank you, God. He doesn't get one of those awesome moments, right? He, he doesn't get a word for somebody. Tom, the Lord told me to tell you that this is going on in your life. And Tom says, you're so right. Thank you. And Eli's resignation really proves that he knew he was an heir, isn't it? He's the Lord. Let him do what he thinks is best. He knows. And it just shows the spiritual sensitivity of Eli and how it was so dim. If I knew that the Lord was in the tabernacle trying to speak, I would have got out of bed. They're like, dude, can I come with you? Do you mind? I'll, I'll hide behind one of these curtains here. There's lots of them. 
And can I just listen? No, Eli goes back to bed. Hey, just, just listen for God. I'm going back to sleep. Eli knows he's in trouble. Samuel has to do a very hard thing when he hears the word of the Lord. Here's the neat thing about God. God doesn't speak a word that is really, really harsh and really, really hard, that the status quo is unacceptable, unless he's doing so with hope for the future. God's not going to speak some hard word into your life unless there's hope for a future. Don't come to me and and be like, Pastor Matt, the Lord told me that you're in deep trouble. Where's the rest? Right? Where's the rest from the Lord? God's a God of hope. And you say, I don't see see the hope here. Eli and his sons had erred. But guess what? Even though Eli and his sons had erred, the whole nation of Israel was an error. And by God saying, I'm going to wipe out this evil priestly line, and I'm going to do something different, he's saying there's hope for Israel in this time. These people had a commission from me, Eli and his sons, and they have blasphemed my name. They're done. But you as Israel, you're not done. I still love you. You have rebelled time and time and time again, but I'm coming back to you now. And you're coming back to me. And here's the hope. Verse 19. And the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, visions, speaking. And there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all of Israel. God tears down, but he's going to build up something better. He might be tearing down in your life, but he wants to build something that's better. He might be coming into your life to give you that hard word. He wants to build something that's better. And he's building up Samuel to lead the nation of Israel. He's given them someone who slept in the very presence of the Lord. Someone who was interested in doing the right thing by the Lord. Someone who, when he got his first word from the Lord, it was a hard word from the Lord, and he spoke it anyways. Israel got something better. God was doing a preparatory work in Samuel. This doesn't give us the end of the story. God didn't come to Samuel and tell him the rest of his life. God didn't say, Samuel, you will be the man to lead the nation of Israel in repentance. You're going to lead the people back to God. You're going to lead them back to me. You are going to be the leader of Israel. That's not the first message he gets, is it? But one of the messages along the way, he got it. Because in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, Samuel, the boy who slept near the ark, led Israel back to the Lord. Samuel, the boy who slept near to the ark, subdued the Philistines. Samuel, who slept near the ark, who slept near the presence of the Lord was the one to raise up David as king through the power of the Lord. And it set in motion the kingdoms of David and Solomon, the high points of the Jewish nation. It was Samuel who did all that. But what's God's first word? A hard word. A tough word. But a word that he had to obey in speaking. How did he get his start? He listened to God and acted upon what he heard, however hard. He listened to God. He acted upon what he heard, however hard. So you say, Matt, I think we've come full circle. I would say, yes, we have. God is trying to speak to us. 
God is trying to do something among us. He doesn't send his spirit just so we can, we can have the warm fuzzies and go, wow, that was a nice service. He sends his spirit because he wants to speak. He wants to give visions. He wants to heal. He wants to save. That's what our God does. What's he doing in our midst? Why is he speaking to some? God is speaking to some of you and he's speaking to us in the congregation because he's saying wherever we are, our status quo is unacceptable. I didn't say you were in sin. Hear me. I didn't. You might be, but I didn't say that. I didn't say that you're rebellious before the Lord. You might be, but that's not necessarily the case. You might be living a very pious life and it might be unacceptable before the Lord because you're not listening to his admonitions. You're not listening to what he has to tell you. And what he wants you to do. God speaks when the status quo among his people is not acceptable. And he wants to show us that there is hope and a good plan for the future. He speaks to tell us that the light has not gone out. Some of us are living as if the light has gone out. The oil has gone from the lamp. And night has come. Our ministry before the Lord is over. The high point was 20 years ago. The high point was ten years ago. The high point was five years ago. I no longer hear from the Lord. I no longer minister for Him. The light's gone out. My eyes are dark. And God says in the midst of a horrible time, of a sad time, of a pointless time, the lamp has not gone out. The lamp has not gone out. You're not done. You're still here. The lamp hasn't gone out. I'm convinced that the lamp didn't have to go out for Eli. He let the lamp go out. Your lamp does not have to go out. You're still here. And God is trying to move amongst our congregation. And what are you doing when he starts to move? Are you reading your bulletin? Are you taking a bathroom break? Are you not engaging? God wants to speak. He's speaking in today's tabernacle. And he wants the status quo to go bye-bye and hope for the future to come. And he wants it to come for you and me, both personally and congregationally. He wants it to come for you. Your light has not gone out. Your lamp is still burning. God still has a word for you or else you wouldn't be here. And it's your choice whether you're going to say, here I am, Lord, or go back. You can go back to sleep, or you can say, here I am, Lord. Some of you have thought that your life is falling action, but we've already seen in the nation of Israel, you can hit that climax again when God steps in. It's not just the rising action, climax, and falling action. You can go right back up to where God wants you to be, at the high point of your life living with Him. What do we do when God begins to speak? We need to stay near the presence of God and then listen. We say, here I am, Lord. The problem for most of us is we have no opportunity to receive because we spend no time listening. We spend no time listening. We get in the hustle and bustle of life. Things get real busy. You finally sit down on your couch at 9.30 p.m. for the first time in the day, and you say, all right, let's do it again tomorrow. But God wants to speak, and you're going to sleep. You've got to give time for God to speak to you. You have a perfect opportunity when you come to church for God to speak to you. 
but you've got to be listening all the time. Samuel made his bed in the presence of the Lord. I believe that's why he heard. Where are you making your bed? After the sitcoms, right? A pillow on the couch. Where are you making your bed? God wants to speak. I just heard a testimony from a young lady yesterday, and this young lady has uh, evidenced some gifts of healing in her life over the course of time. In fact, I witnessed one of these miraculous healings when she was told to pray for somebody and they were healed. And just this past weekend, the Lord said to her, you know what, somebody that you're going to come across has an ankle injury, and they're in pain, and the pain is here. God showed her the spot. So she was with her co-worker one day, and the co-worker looked at her and said, oh, my ankle is killing me. And she said, oh, does it hurt here? And she said, yes. And she prayed for her, and the ankle was healed. That doesn't happen if you don't listen. I'd love to have the gift of healing. Spend some time in the presence. I, I, I'd, love to, I, I'd love to speak a word of prophecy or a word of knowledge. If God would give me one, spend some time in the presence. Here's the problem, though. <laughs> if you desire it, you might be in the wrong place. Because God often speaks a hard thing to do, doesn't he? Doesn't he? What if that girl would have said, does it hurt right here? And she goes, no, it's this ankle. That would have been embarrassing. God speaks hard things for us to do. How do we know it's God when he speaks? Well, he'll probably say something that we really don't want to hear and ask us to do something that we really don't want to do. I've had some wonderful times where the Lord has affirmed me, poured out his love to me, spoken to me in times when I was down and low, and I needed to know that I had a God who loved me. Hear me. But when we listen in the presence of the Lord and we are whole, he has stuff for us to do. He wants to get us whole so he can do stuff in us. So when he spoke those words of affirmation to me, when he built me up, when he healed my spirit, he healed it because he had work to do. And he has work to do in you. God often tells us something we don't want to hear and asks us to do something we don't want to do. Right, Dale? Yeah, I'm sure you really wanted to walk up here last week and give that word. I know I would have. I, I love when I interrupt services that other people are leading. But seriously, I'm not making fun of you, Dale. You hear what I'm saying. Seriously, it's terrifying. Uh, God gave me a word. I'm going to interrupt now. You better be right. You were right on. Thank you. You know. But seriously, Abraham, Moses, Jeremiah, Mary, Peter, none of them were chomping at the bit. I, I can't imagine. Are we willing to listen? Or are we willing to say yes to the Lord? Some of us are busy doing our best Eli impression. We're complacent with sin. We're going spiritually blind. We've lost our youth. We've lost our fervor for the Lord. But the lamp has not gone out. Get out of bed. Turn the lamp on brightly because God is desiring to speak to us. He wants to bust up our status quo and he might be just wanting to speak to you. Spend some time in the presence. Close the door. Go into the prayer closet. Sit in the presence of the Lord. Maybe he'll be silent. You'll still come out a better person. Spend some time. Don't walk out of here and just go, great service, thank you. Thank you. That was wonderful. Don't do that. God wants to bust up your spiritual status quo. He wants to give you a hope and a future. If only you'll listen. If only you'll respond. He's got great things to do in all of us. That's why he came down last week. He wants to do something among us. Will you listen? Let us pray.
God, we had a time in this place of listening last week. Now, Lord, I pray that we would take the next step. Lord, not just of listening again in this place, but listening, Lord, daily. Spending time in your presence, waiting to hear, Lord, what you would have us do, and then doing it. Lord, I pray that you would make of us mature people, people who don't just go from one direction to another based on one week of preaching or one thing we heard on TV or one article we read. But Lord, may we be mature people who hear directly from you, ones who spend time in your presence and listen for your voice. So that, Lord, the times that we come together as a congregation and your spirit moves would only be the icing on the cake. It would only be the celebration of what you're already doing in our lives. Lord, I pray that for every lamp in every home in this congregation, I pray oil and I pray fire. And Lord, I pray that you would speak. I pray that you would speak. Lord, do something new among us. Do something wonderful among us, however hard. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.